following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today. Uh, as you probably assumed, we're continuing in our Advent series. It's called A Great Light. Uh, last week, we looked at the song that Simeon sang as he held the infant Jesus in the temple. Uh, he sang of Jesus being a light to the Gentiles, which led us to prophecies in the book of Isaiah and even all the way back to the first light of creation. And, and a lot of what we did is we began to explore how uh, deep the idea that Scripture says God is light really goes. Like, how, how far does that really go? And, and by explore that, I mean we scratched the surface a bit and, and we acknowledged that uh, there are likely parts of that incredible truth that we're not going to fully grasp. But we kind of peeked into that and realized, man, this, this is a common thread. It's, it's what could accurately be called kind of a mega theme throughout Scripture. It's something to pay attention to. And so this week, we're going to narrow our focus a bit to the light that the Word of God and the truth of God provides to mankind. Uh, In Psalm 119, we have an often quoted but perhaps underexplored declaration. Psalm 119 says that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I think at a basic and and kind of broad level, uh, that's not really hard to understand. I I would go so far as to say, I think there's those who don't even believe Jesus is Lord that often see the Bible as at least a somewhat helpful moral compass. And to be sure, uh, the Bible does give us a divine definition for morality, which supersedes our mere mortal and temporal whims, okay? And that's important. If, if we're going to agree that there is some basis for morality in the world, I think the God who created everything is probably a, a good source to start with to figure out what that is. Uh, some would disagree, but uh, that's kind of a basic biblical premise. Now, though I think many even that maybe do not trust Christ, would, would say the Bible is maybe helpful in terms of understanding what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, to reduce the Word of God to only a compass, a moral compass, is tragic. Not just because it would hide some of the light that the Word of God provides, it, it's far worse than that. Because to do that, to reduce the Word of God to only a moral compass, would make it into the very opposite of a source of light. It would make it the darkest of dungeons where really we would be doomed to fumble around forever looking for some way out. The Bible is really a library of books written over a large span of time by many different human instruments. But it is one story. It's God's story of how he created us to be in perfect relationship with him, how we then bought the lie that there was something better than that, and and in so doing, we sinned against him. And then 
And then it tells us about the almost inconceivable lengths that he has gone to to bring us out of the darkness and death of sin and into the light and life of his presence once more. To say that in maybe a a shorter way, the whole Bible is explaining why we need a Savior, how God gave us a Savior, and what it looks like to follow our Savior. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Now, to reduce God's word to only a moral compass, it puts us in the position of saving ourselves by doing and being good. Or even worse than that, by believing that we have no need to be saved because we are already good. And oftentimes you end up in that position by comparing yourself to others who you view as bad. And those two things, trying to be good or or to save ourselves or not thinking anybody needs to be saved or or certainly not me, I'm a pretty good person, those are the darkest and most dangerous positions a human can be in. The stakes are high, that we see the Word of God for what it is, that we understand the light of the Word of God as it truly is, not simply as a light that shows you how to be good, to do right and to avoid wrong. It's it's far more than that. Uh, By by way of example, I think this is kind of funny, I, I told a coworker this week, uh, I said, hey man, you're already halfway there to following Jesus. He's like, what do you mean? I said, bro, you already know you're a sinner. <laughs> right? And uh, now, let me say this for context. You know, I've, I've worked with this guy a long time. We have enough relationship that I can do that, that I can drop a bomb on him like that. And he took it in the way that I meant it. And I think his answer was something like, yeah, I know, but I'm just stubborn. I said, well, we got to keep working on that, man. Uh, but that's, that's really true, isn't it? I mean, Charles Spurgeon said, you, there is no true experience of regeneration without a realization of your spiritual bankruptcy. Okay? So the big point of God's word is leading us to his gospel. And it is his gospel that is meant to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And today, we're going to explore together what that actually and practically means. And so uh, I know, you know, the the average wisdom around preaching and trying to teach somebody something is, uh, you know, you you don't want to have more than three points because people can't track and all of that. But we're going to get into some scriptures today that, you know, to chop it anymore would, would rob us of, of some of the, the context that's important. And there's more than three points here. So just get a notebook out and uh, write some down if you're going to struggle to remember, okay? So there's, there's a lot here, but it's all good and it's all going to help us. And it all is in a very real way uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in the sense that it's supposed to be and that God has meant it to be, which is real important. Okay, so as I said, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible to follow along, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, give us a chance to give you one. We really enjoy doing that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Praise God for his word. So as we work through this, you could probably pick something else, but for the sake of the reason why we're here, I want us to just lock in this phrase found in the middle here. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So let's keep that phrase in mind as we work through this, okay? That's, I mean, again, there's, <laughs> there's so much here. As, as always, my biggest problem is what do I not say? What, it's not figuring out what to say, it's what do I not say, because we can't say it all. But let's do our best, okay? So come back to verse 1. We're going to work through this. Okay, therefore, he starts... Therefore, since we have this ministry, okay, so if you're paying attention and uh, you understand what the word therefore means, you're saying, what ministry, right? Because now everything else that we're about to unpack today and work through, is, he's, he's saying all this in light of something else he just said, right? Therefore, all of this cool stuff about, you know, <laughs> the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, right? So, so what ministry? What is he saying? Well, Paul explains that in chapter 3. I'll just give you a synopsis. Uh, his kind of summary statement is it's what he calls the ministry of the Spirit. And he also calls it being servants of a new covenant. Okay? And so he's making a distinction now between what he and the other apostles that were teaching uh, about Jesus and continuing the message of the kingdom. Uh, he's making a distinction between that and what was already in place uh, as a part of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And so he says, you know, those of us preaching the gospel were not like Moses, who had to veil his face so that the sons of Israel were not overwhelmed by the glory of God, uh, which shone from Moses' face. That's why Moses had a veil. He came down from the mountain after being with, with God in God's presence, and his face was glowing like some kind of mutant, and uh, the people of Israel were freaked out, understandably. And uh, so he, he veiled his face. He's saying, we, we don't have to do that. Um, he, he says, if if the old covenant had glory, then surely the new covenant has glory, right? So these are just the points he made in chapter 3. I want you to understand what the therefore is for, okay? Um, and, and, and to kind of expand on that idea or give an analogy, <clears throat> the old covenant has, has been described many different ways, but one, one analogy that uh, old Bible teachers have used, it's been around a long time, basically, is that the Old Testament, if you could conceptualize this, is like, it's like a, a very dimly lit room filled with the most incomprehensible treasure you could ever imagine. That, that under the Old Covenant, there, it, the Old Covenant was leading us to the treasure, was leading us to the glory of Christ. It was all a setup to get us there, but, 
but those that were standing in the position of, of only having that, not having the full revelation of Christ's birth and life and death and resurrection. They were, they were, they were allowed into the room, but they, they couldn't see all of the beauty and, the, and, the, and the, the magnificence of the treasure contained within. But then Christ comes, and when Christ comes, it's as if the brightest light you can imagine is turned on in the room, and now you can see in vivid detail all of the treasure that's contained there. That's, that's one way to kind of conceptualize the difference and understand how the Old and New Covenant interplay, right? Uh, and, and, and so <clears throat> the first way we're, we're seeing here that the gospel is a guiding light for us is, is, is to keep us in awe-filled gratitude, okay? So all that first part was explained to you, why does he say therefore? Why is, all the thoughts we're going to work on now is tied to this comparison of Old and New Covenant. Now we're getting into the next phrase, which, so he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. And so the gospel, the light the gospel provides, one way it helps to guide us is by keeping us in awe-filled gratitude. And that awe-filled gratitude helps us to not give up as things get difficult. Where do I see that? Well, it's in this little line that could be overlooked he says, as we received mercy, he says, we have this ministry. We are able to preach to you about the goodness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ over all things, that Christ is this rich treasure. We're able to say anything about that, to understand that, to be living it because we've received mercy. That's why. And the question I would pose to you is this, as you sit here this morning, are you amazed today that you are a Christian, if you are one? Are you amazed that you're a Christian? I, I heard someone say once that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was prominent uh, many, many decades ago, but if you can get a hold of any of his stuff, it'd be a blessing to you, that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a test for this, and, and of course, you know, not maybe 100% accuracy, but a good indicator. He said that if you ask someone if they're a Christian, you just, you're meeting someone for the first time, or you've known them for a while, but then the question comes up, and you ask them, hey, are, are you a Christian? And if their answer is, well, well, of course I'm a Christian, that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign, because what it doesn't communicate is an awe-filled gratitude or an understanding of the very fact that it's by mercy alone that you can say that. Well, of course I'm a Christian. That, that denotes maybe a, a little bit of confusion about what it is that grants us <laughs> the right to be sons and daughters of God. Because it's not our goodness or some inherent value, intrinsic value within us, but it is by Christ alone. It is through his sacrifice. It is through us actually coming to the understanding that we would have no right to stand before a holy, perfect God if it were not for the righteousness that God gives us by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And so what that means is, if the gospel is truly lighting our way, it should be impossible for us to take for granted the indescribable mercy of God by which we have been welcomed into the kingdom. I thought you could have said amen there. I don't know. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's try verse 2. See if you like that one better. I thought verse 1 was awesome. Verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I'm going to, as a result of what we see in verse 2, I'm going to, I'm going to give you this statement and you can chew on it, argue with it, uh, do whatever you want with it, but I, I stand by it. I believe this scripture points us to, to a reality that the light of the gospel is the only thing that allows us to live in true honesty and authenticity. The light of the gospel is the only thing that allows us to live in true honesty and authenticity. Because the gospel allows us to be honest about our shortcomings instead of posturing and virtue signaling. Think of it this way. If, if, we, if we can't even truly come to God without admitting we are sinners in need of mercy, then we know his love for us is not based on pretending that we aren't sinners in need of mercy. And yet how often... Even those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, even those of us who have drank of the living water that Christ provides, are tempted and drawn back into that old con of putting up masks and pretending. And the reality is, if God made us, then authenticity, that's, that's a kind of a buzzword in our day, right? Be authentic, be, be true to yourself. Well, we need to think sometimes harder about what yourself is, because if we were made by God for God with a purpose, then our true self cannot be discovered aside from him. If we have a creator God, then we can't just go in and start navel-gazing and looking for some inner light to guide us. We need to humbly admit, we need outside input about even understanding what it means to be authentic. And then, <laughs> when, when the light of the gospel and the truth of God's word begins to shine on us and begins to, to reveal things that are less than perfect, we then can run to the truth that the gospel allows us to be honest about that, that God will not reject us as a result of that. This also frees us from the temptation. You see this here. This thought connects in the mind of Paul it frees us from the temptation to twist the word of God to justify our sin. What did he say? We've renounced the things hidden because of shame. Okay, so we just addressed that. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Does that phrase catch anyone else's attention? I'm like, I'm like ooh, I'm like, that'll sizzle you right there. Adulterating the word of God. Now that could look a lot of different ways particularly as it pertains to those that do what I'm doing right now. But I don't, that's not the focus of today, and I don't want to get into a rant and end up kicking one of these Christmas trees over. So let's just talk about you, okay? We're not going to talk about false preachers today. We're going we're to zero in on you and me. How's that sound, okay? All right. But this idea of adulterating the Word of God, do you not know, have you not experienced, can you not, may, <laughs> maybe you can't, see it as a temptation for yourself, but surely you can understand how someone else could be tempted to twist the word of God, to, to shade the truth, to leave parts out or something to that effect to, to justify your own desire, your actions, 
Either a desire, something that you want to do, or something that you have done. And if the light of the gospel has not penetrated our heart to the degree that we know we don't have to hide and lie, shame, adulterate the word of God in order to try to make ourselves look good, that we can come to this God of great mercy and say, I have not done well. I have failed again, and he has promised new mercy every morning. He has promised long-suffering and patience and kindness towards us. Now, as with anything, that truth can be taken and twisted and, and could be that truth itself could be used to basically have the attitude that, well, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard people say it this way, um, which is, is pitiful, but, you know, somebody, somebody asked, hey, man, what, you just kind of live in your life however you want, no regard for God and his word. What, what, what if, you know, you, you die and you find yourself standing before the judgment seat of this God the Bible described? And, and the answer will sometimes be something to the effect of, well, I guess he'll forgive me. That's his job, Right? Whew. we have a good, holy, loving, patient God, but the word holy was in there. He's also a just God, and uh, you should not play with him. He's not one to be trifled with. And the reality is, I mean, the, the, the word of God does such a good job just cutting off all our escape routes, right? Because there, there's, just, there's no, no room if we understand what the God of the Bible who he really is and what he's about, we can't, we can't even rest in this idea, like I can, I can just have a couple little hidden chambers of things over here that nobody ever has to know about. Like we are laid open before the Lord. He, he sees it all, which makes the cross even more amazing, which makes his continued commitment to loving us and doing all things for our good even more amazing. Because even the stuff buried down in my heart that I'm not even aware of in, in terms of my wretchedness, he's already seen it all and still says, if you'll trust me and you'll trust the finished work of my son, I will love you and I will keep you. And I'll call you son. What? Mm, 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 mm. So we're freed from the temptation to twist the word of God to justify our sin. We don't have to live in fear of rejection if we aren't perfect. We can be honest about it and ask for the help Christ has already promised he would give us to put our sin to death day by day. And also, what this means is if, if you have a whole community of people operating from these principles, it means you can walk in the light with them as well and truly be known by others. Because here's the reality. We fear being known and not loved. But being loved and not known is hollow and empty. And deep down, we really know it. Deep down, we really know that for people to love some projected version of ourselves that we're presenting, that that lacks a depth and realness. And all of us desire, we, we fear somebody, the idea of somebody, if they really know me, if I really open it all up, if I'm really honest about where I am imperfect, that they're not going to love me. But friends, it's worse to try to cover all that up and to, and to try to deceive people into loving some version of yourself you created that isn't real. Some quasi-perfect or, or maybe I'll every once in a while let something show just to just because I know that's kind of what you're supposed to do, but I'm not that bad. 
To be known and not loved is something we fear, but to be loved and not known is worse. It's hollow. It's not real. But the gospel gives us a way to be known and loved, both by God and by people that understand the gospel and are trying to live by it as well, which is a precious gift. It's, it's a deep, it's beyond desire. I mean, it's a need for us. God built us to be known by him and loved by him and to be known by each other and loved by each other. Amen. Verses three and four. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. First thing to deal with. When it says here, the God of this world, you'll notice it, it's a little g, and then later in the same verse, it talks about Christ, the image of God, that's a big g. Okay, So what do we have here? This reference to the God of this world, little g, is a reference to Satan. Okay, This is the only place it's said like this. There was several times when Jesus himself referred to Satan as, as, as the prince of this world. And so how do we think about that? Well, we need to understand, because you could read that and say, hey man, well I remember last week, uh, you saying the yin-yang wasn't right, and like, you know, the, the dark and light aren't equally balanced, but like, what does this mean, right? We got this guy being called the god of this world, that seems pretty significant. What we need to understand is that uh, <clears throat> at the end of the day, <laughs> Satan, only, Satan doesn't do anything that God doesn't okay. God is sovereign. Okay? Nothing, it's, there's nowhere for Satan to sneak around a corner and go, oh, he's not going to see this one and pull something off. You understand? Now, that has all kinds of implications we don't have time to get into right at this moment, but that's, that's a truth for you to chew on and think about. Okay? A, so this, this saying that Satan is the god of this world, it's not in any way coming anywhere close to raising Satan's authority or anything like that to the, the level of God's. God is sovereign and he's the only one. Okay? He's the only one that when asked, hey, by Moses, who, who do I say is sending me can just say, I am. Period. <laughs> right? Like, okay, you stand alone. Right? That's why we sing songs like the second song we sang today, which I, are angels just sending songs down from the throne now? Because like, that, was, that was lit, bro. I don't know where that came from, but more of that, please. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so one thing we need to understand is that this veiling, okay, that, that phrase God of this world, it's all the way back in the garden, okay, God created earth, he created this beautiful garden, and he gave Adam dominion over it, okay, who named the animals, did God do it or did Adam do it? Adam did it, right? Adam had a job, take care of the animals, take care of the, the, you know, tend to the garden, all of that, eat whatever you want, party, have a great time, be naked, spend time with me, it's going to be rad, right? And then somehow we believed that Satan had a better idea, which is amazing uh, and sad. But, so what, what functionally happened at one level, and, and the Bible doesn't exactly lay this out for us, but, but it, it's fairly clear to see, if Adam had dominion, and, and so he's, he's, the, he's the deputy, right? He's, God's, God's the sheriff, Adam's the deputy. He's got, he's got a star on his chest, says, I, 
I'm operating under the authority of the one higher than me, but this is, this is a realm that I'm supposed to be in charge of, the earth that God created for us to inhabit, right? And then Satan comes along and says, hey, I got an idea. Let's disregard what God said because he's trying to keep good things from you. He, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit. That's silly. What's going to happen is you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And then Adam uses his authority that God gave him to go and obey this other guy instead of God. And then what we have now is this temporary situation where the authority that Adam was supposed to have as God's man, right, Satan to some degree has. But Adam was always under God's sovereignty. And, and what, to whatever degree Satan has deluded himself into thinking he's, he's got real control of anything, it's, it's the deception of a fool's pride is really what it ends up at. And how do we know that? Well, for one thing, we know Satan can only veil or blind the eyes of those who really let him. Okay? Why do I say that? Well, Peter also gives us a description to understand how Satan works in this world. He said, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. Peter didn't say, the devil is like a roaring lion running around chomping people at will. No, he roars, okay? So through lies and deception and temptation, he roars, whether he's trying to convince you that he's got the power or convince you God doesn't love you or convince you there's some better way to live than God has laid out for you, whatever the roar is. And then we, in our foolishness, sometimes respond to that roar. We move towards it like fools. We believe it. Those are the ones he may devour. But those who are standing in the truth and power of God, the roar doesn't have that alluring effect. Because if you know the truth, lies have very little power. I mean, I, I know many of you here love me, I'm your pastor, you respect me, but if, if I was to stand up here and say, all right, today, right now, I'm, I'm here to convince you the sky is red, and you're going to agree with me, or you're wrong. And I'm, now the whole rest of the sermon was about convincing you that the sky was red. You'd be like, hey, do we have a number for someone that can help this guy? Hopefully, right? Like... He finally cracked. Like, we did it to him, finally, right? We pushed him over the edge. So let's get him some help, and uh, hopefully he'll be okay, right? No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy that. Why? Well, because you've looked up and you've seen the sky is blue, <laughs> right? So there you go. Maybe that's a silly analogy, but hopefully it helps to understand how this, this veiling works and the limitation of the forces of darkness and their power in the world. And ultimately... Um, Everything Satan, the best example I can think of is the cross. Everything Satan thinks he's doing and like getting away with something or advancing his agenda of overthrowing God, everything he's doing, right, is, is like, it's, it's not even checkers, man. It's like shoots and ladders, okay? And God, God is playing the most complicated game of chess anybody's ever seen. Let me just give you an example. This is what, this is what I mean. Okay, surely the enemy thought he was doing something. He was getting something done by riling up the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and getting the Romans involved and, oh, we're going to crucify this guy. Surely he thought he was getting something accomplished by stirring up that hate and vitriol towards Jesus so that he could shut him up and shut up his message about the kingdom and, and shut up and stop him from feeding the hungry and healing the sick and raising people from the dead and preaching to people that they could repent and God would receive them in his kingdom, Right? Surely he thought he was doing something as those nails were driven. 
As the spear went into the side, surely he thought he had accomplished something. The whole time he was getting played. Because the very thing he thought he was accomplishing, he was doing the exact opposite. Very slavery that he wanted, the, the, the control he wanted to have over mankind, he, he, was, he was losing it in the, in the greatest fashion possible. As Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins. Okay? So that's, it goes back to the promise of Romans 8. God will work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So don't let this Satan, little g, God of this world thing mean more than it means, okay? God is in control, all right? I know that brings up other difficult questions, but both God is in control, and if you start to lose grip as you look around at all of what's difficult in this world to reconcile with that idea, then go back to the cross to remember that God is also good, and he knows what he's doing, and he's oftentimes working things that nobody else can see is being worked, okay? He's always doing that. Not often. He's always doing that. Okay? All right. Now, this idea of a veil, what did you imagine? I, I imagine the eyes being covered by some kind of cloth, and I think that's one way that this blindness that keeps people from being able to see the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel, I think that's one way it happens. So what does that look like? I mean, I kind of just alluded to it. It, it can come through despair and darkness and hopelessness, difficulty, struggle in this world. It can lead people to believe that God is, is not good or powerful or, or, or real even. It, it can lead people to believe through this despair that there could be a blindness over their eyes, an inability to see the light of the gospel because they, they just don't believe God loves them, either because of difficulty that they've endured in a broken world or, or maybe because of the, the depth of their own sin and, and a, an inability to understand how God could love them, right? And so darkness and despair, this blinding can, can be like that. It can come through those kinds of things. That's, that's one approach, one way to try to keep people, because the whole point of this veiling, this blindness is what? Keeping people from seeing the truth of truths, the treasure of treasures, the pearl of great price, the one thing that all of us need to see, the beauty of the gospel, which is, first of all, bad news. We are sinners, and then it's good news. God made a way for us to not be. <laughs> God made a way for us to be saved, okay? That's the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And so sometimes Satan keeps people from being able to see the, the, the light of the gospel through, through hardships and difficult things. But sometimes, this blindness, this veiling, it can actually come in the form of light. The Bible says that the, the, the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Uh, and so what does that look like? Well, sometimes success and comfort and the fake light of earthly pleasures can be as blinding or more and some of the darkness and despair and hopelessness that can come through struggle and striving and, and hard things. Think of it like this. You might, that might be hard for us to understand. You've got this light and light. Well, God is light, but then the devil's using light to blind us. How does that work? Well, think about it like this. Think about a, a beautiful sunny day in the most beautiful place you've ever been. Okay? Everyone got the most beautiful place you've ever been? Think about it in your mind. I think about a, a beautiful sunny day, and you're just taking it all in. And because of the light of the sun, you can, you can see all of it, the in intricacy and the beauty of it, what, whatever that is for you. Now imagine someone runs up 
with the most powerful flashlight that mankind has ever created, even though it's a sunny day and it's bright out, they take that most powerful flashlight in the world and like, hey, look at this, and shine it right in your eyes. That thing's still going to be able to blind you, even though you're in a, day, a full sun day, right? It's kind of like that. That's how this could work. Because the, the light of the revelation of God's goodness it is like the sun. It does light everything else. It is the light by which we understand why we're here and what this is all about. And yet there are these, these other lights from other sources that at least temporarily could be brighter. Now that, that light of the sun is, is always there doing its job. That, that flashlight will run out of battery at some point. And then oftentimes, boy, the despair that comes after that is, is tragic. And you might say, oh, I don't know, you got an example of that? Well, Paul knew something of that kind of blindness. Paul was chasing glory by persecuting the church. Paul thought he was being led, he had zeal, even thought he was serving God and what he was doing. He had a light that was leading him. His path looked illuminated before him, right? He wasn't, Paul, when, when Christ had to come deal with him, Paul wasn't sitting in a, a dark cellar somewhere sad about the state of the world or, or feeling lonely. He was out on a mission to kill Christians because he thought they were liars and heretics and were detracting from the real truth. What I think is hilarious about that, though, is Paul, Paul was being led around by this false light, this false light that I'm saying sometimes can temporarily be brighter than the, the light that God provides to every man, but then the very way God gets Paul's attention is to say, oh, oh I have a brighter light. Let me, let me just show you that. Right? On the road to Damascus. Boom! Is, is it not ironic that the way Jesus comes and deals with Paul is, hits him with a light so bright, he, it's like welder's flash. And he's blind now for a few days until the Lord has somebody pray for him so his eyes can be healed and, and, and the scabs fall off his pupils, right? Like that, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that, that to me drips with irony and I think it's funny. All right, so we're, we're still, <clears throat> we're still uh, in, in verse four here. And thus far, you might be thinking, man, buddy, this doesn't seem like a very Christmassy message. This is supposed to be Advent. I expect Christmassy messages, right? You might, this, I, I'm not getting the Christmas feels from this, sir. And I sympathize with that, so I wanted to make sure I stop and point out to you that this very much is a Christmas message, and, and here's where we see it. It's here in verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God, who is the image of God. We, <laughs> it is a Christmas message if you understand what can't be seen by those who are blinded. This phrase here, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's what we need to know. Without the birth of Christ and the life of Christ, we would still be fumbling in a very dimly lit room. This is not the only place in the scriptures where we have this idea of Jesus being the very image of God. The writer of Hebrews says it. Paul says it here. It's elsewhere. This idea that because we've seen Jesus, Jesus said that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
That's part of why we can say with confidence that the old covenant, it was like a dimly lit room full of treasure. But when Jesus came on the scene, the treasure became, it was, it was 4K or whatever we're at now. I don't know. Is there a new one? Probably, right? I can't keep up. But it, it was, it's the most vivid, clear because of the light that he brought into the situation. We know more about who God is, what God thinks, how God will deal with us. We know more about those things because of Jesus than anything else. Jesus gives us the clearest picture of who God is, and we would not have had that if God was not willing to send Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, to go through the humbling experience of God becoming a man, being birthed by a poor girl, raised by human parents, (laughs) so that he could be not only the perfect sacrifice for our sins, fully man and fully God, but could also show us during his time on earth, who God is in the clearest way possible. Is that Christmassy enough for you? It's pretty Christmassy. I hope so, because I don't have anything else for you. So (laughs) hopefully that that got you there. Verses 5 and 7, okay? Uh, We're going to skip 6 for now, because 5 and 7 kind of address the same thing, and then we'll come back, because verse 6... Is, is, is on some stuff. It's about some stuff, so i got to take a minute there. So verses 5 and 7, let's read, read those. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So first of all, he's saying, Paul's, look, we're not preaching ourselves. Preach Jesus, right? And we're your bondservants. We're, we're here to serve you for the sake of Christ. We're here to serve you in the way Christ has served us. Okay? Then, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So in both of these, we see this reduction of the prominence of you and me, man, men and women, and and a lifting up, a glorification of the role of God in all these things. And why is that important? That's important because sometimes it's not the enemy that blinds us either with darkness and despair or false lights of hope or false lights of delusions of grandeur or false lights of some kind of uh, alternative purpose for our lives or, or, or even just the pursuit of trivial pleasures in this life. Right? Sometimes, it's, sometimes it's not the enemy that's doing the blinding. Sometimes it is we ourselves. Sometimes it is not that the enemy has to come along and trick you. Sometimes we trick ourselves. Sometimes we are the ones blinding ourselves with this delusional light, this false light that does not lead us to the true meaning and purpose for which we were made. By way of example, have any of you ever been to a place where there is near zero or zero light pollution at night? Have you been somewhere out in a rural area in the wilderness? I've spent time in rural Montana. Uh, I remember one time as a child, I was in Utah, and I'm trying to tell you something. If you haven't gotten somewhere at night where there is not lights made by humans messing up our ability to see the night sky, I would, just, I would just encourage you, when you plan your next vacay, make that a, a part of what you care about, right? 
Like, I know the beach is cool and all that, but find one where there's not a bunch of lights. So that just, I think everybody one time in their life should go outside at night when there's no man-made lights messing it up. Because what I'm trying to tell you, man, I've about, I've about messed the vertebrae up in my neck in some of those situations with how long I've stood there in flat-out awe at a night sky that man hasn't had the chance to screw up with his light. It's amazing. The one in Utah, I sometimes question if it's real, the memory that I have. It was so vibrant. There were so many stars. I, I feel like it was, it, it was like a, a, a drawing of it or, or like, the, like somebody photoshopped something. It was so incredible. Like it, 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 and it stuck with me. I was not but nine years old. I've never forgotten it. And, and, and anytime I'm visiting family in Montana, you know, I don't know if they're creeped out, but I'm out there late, standing in the yard. You know what I mean? Need, need 800 milligrams of ibuprofen the next morning so I, so I can get my neck back, like, you know, the way it should be. It's, it's incredible. And, and my point is, sometimes we ourselves, with our foolishness, create false light. Light that does not open us up to the grandeur of God's purposes and what God is doing. And so, I mean, even, you could, you probably don't have to go that far, man. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rural areas in Ohio, but get out of, get out of the city sometime at night and just look up. Try to find somewhere high. That'll help. Get up on a hill or something. And, and if you're having to only use your imagination right now to understand what I'm saying, because you've never done that, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it, it'll help you. You'll understand this point better if you can get a good look at a night sky that humans haven't messed up, okay? Because we mess stuff up, because we have false light. And uh, that's <clears throat> sad, but true. So that's part of what Paul's saying here. We're, we're not preaching ourselves. We're not the light. Jesus is the light. And he's the only one that's going to really show you what you need to see. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That speaks to, even as, as we go out and begin to try to share this, we understand the power is not us. You know, an earthen vessel, that's like a clay pot. Nothing real special about that. It's, it's actually pretty fragile, <laughs> right? But God saw fit to make sure nobody gets confused about what this glorious light and power is. When it shones forth from a clay vessel, you know it's like, it ain't that doing it. There's something going on here. There's something beyond the outer thing I'm looking at here. And all of that is about God making sure we don't get confused about who gets the glory. And you might think, well... Is, why, why is that? Is God some kind of insecure megalomaniac that, that needs all this attention? No, dear friends. God understands because he made us that he is the best thing for us. God glorifies himself as a part of his love, right? Just, just recently, I saw another well-known preacher perpetuating this idea that like, because the Bible says God is holy more than it says God is love, that we should have some hierarchy of the attributes of God, that God's holiness is more important than God's love. Okay, here's the thing. I may still kick a Christmas tree. <laughs> look, 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 look. Okay, if God, is God infinitely holy? Is he infinitely holy? Okay. Is God also infinitely loving? We don't have a hierarchy. Infinite is infinite. He is all of these things in the fullest measure it could possibly be. You can't measure it. One is not greater than the other. And as a matter of fact, they play off of each other. God 
lets us know how holy he is, lets us know how glorious he is in all these ways because we are so prone to be distracted by lesser lights. And that will hurt us every time. Part of why he makes sure to glorify himself, that's that's him turning up the light. Look over here. Because anywhere else you look, you're going to end up disappointed, broken, hurt, enslaved. All those other lights, they're, they're traps, they're tricks that lead you to darkness. His light is the only one that leads you into perpetually more light forever. Mm. Man, I wish people would quit doing that. Okay, let's look at verse 6. Let's get on to something else. Probably a good idea. Okay, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is an incredible scripture. Verse 6, I'm, oh man, there's so much here, okay? But, and there's so many things I could say about this, but there's, I, want, I want to draw out of this perhaps one of the features that would be least recognizable to the average person reading it, okay? We're talking about the light of the gospel being the, the, the light that we need to navigate our way. It's, it's the light all of the scriptures is leading us to. The gospel is that, that great compass that can illuminate itself. And it, it always, if we have the gospel, you can be in any situation and not be lost, okay? In the light of the gospel, it leads us away from this sin that I'm going to call the sin of othering. It's a sin that leads us into deception. It's a sin that leads us into division. It's a sin that leads us into darkness in many ways. And it's an easy thing to get wrapped up into because of human nature and just the way we work. Okay? We like most people's identity. Psychologists will tell you this. Most people's identity is, is based in their differences from others. And, most, and what that means is most people understand who they are by how they see themselves as better than others. There is, a, there is an implicit temptation to build your sense of who you are and self-worth in comparison to others that you see as <clears throat> not as good in this way or that, okay? That's pitiful, <laughs> okay? And it's sinful. And how do I see this sin, or how do I see this scripture, yeah, you don't want to mix those words up, how do I see this scripture warring against that. Well, what you may not understand is when he, look, when, when Paul says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts. First of all, also last week when you, you know, some of you might have, I know some of you probably thought I was getting ooky spooky, like tying the, the shining of the light of God's gospel and like, like the regeneration, Christ coming, the light that Christ coming is, and then what happens when we are brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And I'm tying that to and, and making it as important as uh, the first light of creation, because that's pretty crucial for like anything to exist. Some of you are like, mm, maybe, I don't know. Well, the light sh- for the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, so Paul maybe thought there was a connection there as well. So you can, me and him will stand together in the kingdom, and you, if you want to argue, we'll be there. And uh, that'll be fun, okay? All right, here's the thing. The one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Light, knowledge, glory. Okay, here's something Paul knew that you may not know. 
That saying, saying light knowledge glory addresses the three things that, the, that the, the primary people groups that Paul was talking to that had these differences, that hated each other, the things they cared about most. For the Jews, it was light, right? Jews, they celebrate Hanukkah, right? The festival of lights, right? Hanukkah is tied to this, even right before the time of Jesus, the rededication of the temple. Conquerors had come in, desecrated the temple, and uh, Judas Maccabee comes in, you know, they, they rise up, they, they push them out, and they're, and they're rededicating the temple. And, and how are they going to do that? What are they going to do to rededicate the temple to God? They're going to they're gonna light candles. They're going to put light in there, okay? Light is this key thing. It's all the way back to the beginning. It's, it's, all, it's associated with the power of God. It's associated with the, the presence of God, right? So they're, they're going to light candles. And the reason why Hanukkah is still a holiday today is they only had enough oil, okay, to light the candle for one day. They wanted to do it for eight days, Right? And, and the, as the story goes, that oil miraculously lasted, okay, for eight days so that they could light the candles all the days. Now, that's neither here nor there. I'm only saying that. And, and even that is an extension of part of why getting light into the temple was, again, that was them remembering the Feast of Booths and, as I told you last week, the Shekinah glory of God coming in, knocking people down, right? It's light, God's presence. All for the Jews, light was a big deal, Okay. So Paul's addressing them this, by the light idea. And then he says the light of the knowledge. Because you, you could say what Paul's saying here a lot of different ways. But he says the light of the knowledge of the glory. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Knowledge was what the Greeks were after. The Greeks were known for having places like the Areopagus where Paul went in Acts 17. Where a bunch of philosophers are sitting around and all they're doing is they're just exchanging ideas. Let's... Let's keep, let, knowledge, was, that was their pursuit. The high thing they were looking for was knowledge. So Paul here is addressing Jews, light, Greeks, knowledge, right? And then, interestingly, the, so the Areopagus that, that Paul went to in Acts 17, okay, that was the Greek name for it, Areopagus. That, so it was named for the god of war to the Greeks, Ares, Opagus, right? So, but you also hear it called Mars Hill. Why is that? Well, because the Romans came in and conquered and then what's the Roman god of war? Mars. Okay, So now it's Mars Hill, but the meeting body there of philosophers was still known as the Areopagus. That's why when Paul comes in, he's addressing this group of philosophers, these wisdom knowledge seekers, these Greeks. Okay, But interestingly, even in Acts 17, we already see what the Romans are after by the fact that the place is also called Mars Hill. What is, what is Rome after? Glory. Have you heard the phrase, the glory of Rome? And how are they going to seek that glory? How are they going to establish that glory? Through conquering, controlling more land, more peoples. So you have the Jews, light, the Greeks, knowledge, the Romans, glory. And Paul's saying, you're not getting all of these highest virtues that you're seeking after, you're not coming to any of them, near any of them, in any form that's real, without looking at the face of Christ. So whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're a Roman, you need Jesus. And if you're a Jew that hates Greeks and Romans, you better not find yourself believing Jesus can't reach the Greeks and the Romans. If you're a Roman that thinks that the Jews and the Greeks are just these dogs that we conquered that aren't worth anybody's time, Roman, you better humble yourself. And Greek, if you think you're smarter than the other two, you've kind of risen above all of their foolishness and you get to sit in high places and talk about big ideas... You, you better humble yourself and understand you're not going to touch anything that looks like real knowledge or wisdom unless you're willing to come and bow the knee to Christ. You don't get to do the sin of othering. 
if the gospel is lighting your way. You don't get to put yourself in little herds and groups and tribes and, and identify yourself primarily by how you see yourself as better than others. Quit doing that. And ask God to show you how you are doing it. Amen. No matter who you hold disdain for, you can't ever count them out of being reached by the unmatched power of the gospel. And, and to go from that to genuinely hoping that God reaches them by his gospel is, is beautiful. It's freedom. Amen. All right, verses 8 through 12. This is the end. Okay? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Here's what may not be apparent here. Uh, here's the light of the gospel leads us away last point leads us away from the lie that suffering is a sign that God is against us a lot of what Paul's addressing here in all of this is Christ's ultimate authority and, and also that they by God's mercy the ones preaching Christ that they have the, the authority to do that and so part of how the Corinthians a wealthy city may have looked down upon Paul was because Paul oftentimes ran around in almost poverty doing what he was, and, and, and they knew, you know, everybody knew the stories of Paul's shipwrecks and all of the struggles and trials that he went through. And part of what Paul's coming against here is a very deeply ingrained idea for many in the ancient world that if you were suffering, it, there was only one conclusion, that you were bad and that's why you're suffering. Either the gods are punishing you or even... For the Jews and those that had come to believe in the God of the Bible, they were still stuck on this idea that if you're suffering, it's because you've done something to anger God, and that's you're being punished. You might say, well, are you sure? Yes. When Jesus, when they're dealing with the man born blind, Jesus' apostles, and this is towards the end of his ministry. Ooh, how to spit. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry, okay? So they've been with Jesus now for some years. The man born blind, right, pops up and... And what is the question the apostles have? Teacher, who sinned? Him or his parents? They can't imagine a paradigm where this guy is born blind, where this guy is suffering blindness, other than somebody sinned. And Paul here is, is putting a full frontal assault on that idea. We are pressed, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, sure, but we are not dismayed. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. God is with us in the midst of these sufferings. God is using these sufferings to shape and to form us. God is doing something in the midst of these hard things. Now, we need to say, be very careful about this. The pendulum can swing the other way, as it almost always can. Of course, sometimes you may be suffering because you did something dumb. Many times, yes, we know about that, but it is an insidious and unhelpful lie to believe the only way somebody can be going through something and suffering is because they, they are somehow being dealt with by God in that way. There are some systems in which it, it's not even, maybe you sinned, maybe you have a hidden sin, maybe you just don't have enough faith, maybe it's not that you're doing something bad, maybe you're just not doing enough, you're just not believing hard enough, and if you could do that... 
well, all your suffering would go away. No! No. Paul can't be stronger in the language, in the way he lays this out. Do not believe that. That is a wretched, unhelpful lie that has led many astray. And, and the way he's talking about it here is, is look, everything I'm saying, you ought to listen to me. And if, if any, any part of you thinks because I've been shipwrecked and I've gone through all this difficult stuff as, as a result of being out here planting churches, doing something for the kingdom, that since I've ran into some trouble, if, if, you're, just, if you're tempted to discount what I'm saying, I wouldn't. Because in doing that, you're believing a lie. I hope it matters to you that that's true, because it really, really matters to me. And so in all of this, what do we see? In all of this, we see that you're looking, we we all need light. We need guidance in this life, do we not? There are many false lights, some we produce, some produced by the enemy. There's even sometimes where trying to shove us into utter darkness. The the whole point of the forces of darkness is to keep us from seeing this this one light that guides in every situation. There's a reason why Jesus calls himself and is called the morning star. The one that that people have been navigating by for a very, very long time. Right? Why? Because he's the light we're looking for. He's the light we need. His gospel is always going to lead us in the right direction. It takes prayer. It takes continuing to understand how the gospel intersects with every bit of our life to, to, under, to understand that. But, but God is here to help us with those details that are not yet clear. But if you're looking for light, friend, look one place. It's Christ. It's, gospel. it's his gospel. It's, it's the face of Christ. That's where the light of the knowledge of the glory is going to be found. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for these verses in 2 Corinthians. Thank you uh, for the depth that we find here. Thank you that uh, there is is more treasure here, surely, that could be unearthed and examined. But I thank you, Lord, for what you've allowed us to to see this morning. Uh, Lord, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would work these truths deep into our hearts. Help us, please, Lord. There's a reason why you warned us in multiple ways to not just be hearers of your word, but but doers. Lord, please, please help our hearts to be fertile soil upon which the seed of this truth can take deep root and that there would be a harvest, Lord, and it would be for your glory. And we know, Lord, your glory is our good. Those are not two different things. As you are glorified, Lord, it is good for us. As you are made more clear, as the prominence of your great love, as the prominence of of how worthy you are to be trusted is made more clear to us, as you are glorified, as the great worthiness that you alone possess to be worshipped is made clear to us, we benefit because you are the greatest good. You are what we are seeking. You are the truth of truths. You are the treasure of treasures. And so, Lord, I ask that... uh, what you've done this morning in us, that it would, it, would, it would absolutely take deep root and there would be fruit and it would lead to your glory. May you be honored in that and may it help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.